morning, church. Good morning, church. So uh, I, don't, I don't quite know what to say. I, th- I think I'm appreciative of the prayers uh, that I would not spontaneously combust, as, long, as well as everyone who's sitting in the first couple rows. Um, this is my absolutely favorite time of year, and I pray that... Uh, as we walk through the text today, you're going to get a little glimpse of why. I'm so excited and thankful to have the chance to be a part of uh, this series that we're doing on the songs of Christmas, and especially the chance to explore uh, with you the glorious truths that we just sung that drove us to write the song, A Stable Turned a Temple. Um, you know, a driving principle in my philosophy of the ministry of music is that it should be beautiful, it should be captivating. I mean, who doesn't like music, right? But more, more so than anything, one of the driving things, it, it must teach us. It must teach us and admonish us. And so I'm constantly looking for songs that will remind us of the message of the sermon, that will get us into the text, so that when you go home, you don't necessarily have to have the Bible memorized, but the song stuck in your head helps you have the Bible memorized. Well, on Sunday, December 2nd, 2012, Larry preached an Advent sermon from Matthew chapter 1 on the genealogy of Jesus. And as I planned for that Sunday service, I remember I combed through uh, the bowels of all the excellent hymns of Christmas, looking for that one that winsomely showed us why the lineage of Jesus is significant and important. And I was shocked. I couldn't find one. Martin Luther, Charles Wesley, not even Fanny Crosby, greatest name of all hymn writers. And so I turned my attention to the plethora of contemporary worship songs and the bottomless pit of that search engine we know as Google. And there I discovered the only song at that time in 2012 that was based off the lineage of Matthew chapter 1 was Andrew Peterson's classic folk song, Matthew's Begats. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin, which is a phenomenal song. Very faithful to recounting the entire lineage of Jesus found in Matthew 1, but it is not that great a congregational song. And so perhaps this isn't surprising to us. I mean, raise your hand if reading genealogies lights your fire. No Mormons in the room. All right. I mean, it really is about as exciting as reading the phone book, right? And how many great songs have been inspired by the phone book? Except for eight, six, seven, five. There you go. And now you have just proven my point of how music helps things stick in your head, right? Music can help you remember a, I don't know if it was fictional. Was the phone number fictional? A fictional phone number, as pointless as a fictional phone number, or as cosmically important as the promises of God. So here's what I hope you glean from our study of the scriptures today. 
And what I pray a stable turn to temple helps cement in our hearts and in our minds. In this broken world that often looks chaotic and imbalanced and out of control, we have not been forsaken nor forgotten by our creator. But on the contrary, our God has made us incredible, seemingly impossible, absolutely outrageous promises that find their answer in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One person put it this way, Christmas means God keeps his promises. And I'm telling you, church, the more and more I get to know myself, the more and more I realize the reason why I love this season so much is because of that truth. Christmas means God keeps his promises. So when we began writing A Stable Turn to Temple, we wanted to give the church a song that would unpack the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, which serves as a summary statement for the whole genealogy. This is Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Of all of Jesus' ancestors, Matthew intentionally highlights David and Abraham because of the promises God made to these two men. So today, we're going to let the song guide us as it skips a rock across the entire Old Testament. There are three promises that we'll examine today. One is the promise of redemption. The second is the promise of blessing. The third is the promise of an eternal king and kingdom. So let's look at that first promise, the promise of redemption found in the first verse of our song. Oh, glorious day when a stable turned a temple, held in its hay, Emmanuel, the seed that would crush the serpent's head, now sleeps in the straw of Bethlehem. First, let's just address the title of the song and the reoccurring phrase, a stable turned a temple. To our modern ears, when we hear the word, word temple, it conjures up images of Eastern temples in, in the Eastern part of the world, like this one in India, or, or that, actually that one's in Cambodia. That's amazing. That looks straight out of Star Wars. This one in India. Or if you're from my generation, the word temple conjures up uh, images of scary looking men and painted faces that can pull your heart out of your chest. But a temple is very simply a place where the presence of a deity resides and can be communicated with by humans. Prior to Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, which was when God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer, the presence of God dwelt in a certain meeting place. Moses met with God in the tent of meeting, a.k.a. temple. The Levites offered sacrifices and prayer at the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. And after it was destroyed, the second temple was built, 
so that God's people had a place to worship and meet with him. So, when Mary and Joseph rode into Bethlehem that cold night and contractions began and Mary's water broke and the Son of God entered into time and space, that forlorn stable outside of Bethlehem became the most holy, the most beautiful place on earth. A temple where humanity could not only gather to commune with God, but we could see him, we could touch him, we could adore him. That's how the song got its title. Now, now let's look at the second part of verse one. O glorious day when a stable turned a temple, held in its hay, Emmanuel, the seed who would crush the serpent's head now sleeps in the straw of Bethlehem. Carson helped us understand this archaic imagery last week when we looked at Hark the Herald Angels Sing, when these lyrics is what, what we heard. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. These lyrics come from a prophecy that is found three chapters into the Bible. It is spoken by God himself as he addresses Adam, Eve, and the infamous serpent just after they had fallen from grace in the Garden of Eden. This is the second most sorrowful moment in all of history, second only to the death of Christ on the cross, which we could probably say never would have happened if it weren't for this moment. Adam and Eve chose to disobey their creator and chose for themselves what would be right and what would be wrong. And from that singular event, every form of death and disease, every form of betrayal and unfaithfulness, every form of war and murder would plague us. But as God pronounced these just and rightful curses upon Adam and Eve and the serpent, a promise of redemption comes as an exclamation mark at the end of the serpent's curse. Look at Genesis chapter three. This is God speaking. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In other words, one of Eve's children, one of her offspring, one of her grandchildren or great, great, great grandchildren was going to bury his heel into the serpent's skull, destroying him and his power. Mel Gibson portrayed this vividly in his 2004 film, The Passion of the Christ. And interestingly, while most theologians see this prophecy being fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross, or even in Revelation 20, in the final battle when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, Mel Gibson portrays it in the Garden of Gethsemane, connecting the Garden of Eden, where the original curse was given, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ famous, famously pleaded with the Father that if there be any other way than the cross, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Watch this. 
The seed who would crush the serpent's head now sleeps in the straw of Bethlehem. The first promise is the promise of redemption. And it's given to us three chapters into the Bible. The second promise we will see is the promise of blessing that is found in Christ being the son of Abraham. Let's look at those lyrics. Oh, glorious song from the host of heaven calling, proclaiming peace and goodwill towards men. For the brightest star of Abraham descends to bless all the sons of men. The first two lines of every verse in the song come from the New Testament. Then a connection is made between the nativity scene and the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. Verse 2 is attempting to lift our gaze skyward, recounting the angelic visit to the shepherds that announced peace and goodwill towards men. But in our gaze heavenward, I can't help but think of the stars. And when I think of the stars, I think of Abraham and the covenant God made with him. What you need to know before we read these promises is that Abraham and his wife Sarah were of no significance. They weren't rich, they weren't educated, they held no political power or led any groups of people, they were nomad childless, middle-class sheep herders. But what they did have was faith. And it's incredible what God can do with a little bit of faith. You'll recognize these verses from our Gen 12 campaign. So look with me at Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor you who, that's his typo, I will dishonor those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Two items of extreme importance. One, 
God is going to make Abram into a nation. He's going to give Abraham and Sarah something they've never had before. Children. Two, God is going to bless Abraham. And through Abraham, God is going to bring blessing to every family on the earth. So God makes this promise to Abraham and he and Sarah believe God. So they pack up their things and they head to this land where they've never been before, to Canaan. All the while they are waiting for God to give them that child he had promised. But a year passes, then two, then five years, then a decade. And Abraham and Sarah their faith begins to wane. And can't we sympathize with them? I mean, it is a lot easier for us to trust God's power to bring about the miraculous than for us to trust the wisdom of his timing. Abraham and Sarah sought to assist God in fulfilling his promise, so they conspired to have a son through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. But God didn't need any help. What he needed was their faith. And so God reinforces his promise in Genesis chapter 15. And he, that is God, brought him, that is Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Do you know how many stars are in the night sky? According to scientists, our own galaxy, known as the Milky Way, of which our sun is one of those stars, contains between 100 and 400 billion billion stars one between 100 and 400 billion stars so just to clarify some of the smartest humans on earth you know people who split atoms clone sheep and make quantum computers have such a hard time counting the number of stars that their margin of error is 300 billion. And here's where the wonder and beauty of the created universe sends my imagination spiraling because as Abraham gazed up into those billions of stars, each one representing one of his future children, one of those stars shining more brilliantly, shining brighter than all the rest, would be the most important human in all of history. And that star would descend from the heavens to be the fulfillment of God's promise to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham. And so our song cries out this welcome to him. Son of Abraham, bring your blessing to all the nations.
foundations of the earth. O God, who transforms this stable to a temple, come free us from the curse. The blessing he brings is freedom from the curse given in Eden, freedom from death and hell, freedom from the weight and burden of bearing our own sin, true and eternal freedom. And this is why the Apostle Matthew and the song celebrates Jesus as the son of Abraham because he is the promised blessing to all the nations of the earth. The third verse of the song begins, begins us in the Gospel of John and his rich description of Christ as the Word of God incarnate. And then it transitions us to exploring the Old Testament ramifications of Jesus being the son of David. When we think of the Christmas story from the Bible, we think of the nativity scenes given to us from Matthew and Luke. They give us a concrete narrative to follow. You'll recognize this. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem on a donkey. There's no room for them in the inn. They find a stable. Jesus pops out. Angels tell shepherds to come check it out. Wise men from the east follow a star. So on and so forth. Right? But the Gospel of John's account is one of the most breathtaking, glorious, theologically rich chapters in all the Bible. It communicates the true wonder of the incarnation more than its finer details. Just listen to some of these verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As you hear that, it makes the origins of the first few lines of this verse unmistakable. O glorious light, dispelling the darkness the word of God in human form. Heir to David's throne, eternal, the king of kings to us is born. So why is Jesus being related to David a big deal? Well, when David was crowned the second king of Israel, he desired to build God a house or a temple. But God wasn't interested in David building him a house. Instead, God was going to build David a house from his family tree, a lineage that would be established eternally. And one of his sons would sit on a throne forever. Listen to 2 Samuel 7 as God speaks to David. <clears throat> Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house 
And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we will see God fulfill this prophecy in several ways. First, David's son, his first, his, one of David's first biological sons, Solomon, builds the first temple. That is a house for God's name in Jerusalem just after David dies. Second, 14 generations from now, Jesus Christ, the son of David, will be born the king of the Jews. He will die with a sign over his head that reads, the king of the Jews. He will rise as death's conquering king and he is currently reigning as king of kings. And it's not just that his reign is eternal, but it's also good. Listen to the description of his rule. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David's righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Do you hear the description of his reign? You know, we have so many examples of bad, tyrannical uh, rulers. But this, this ruler, this eternal ruler, his reign is of peace. Famously, Isaiah said, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, we heard this earlier, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus is the eternal king of David and he is ushering in a kingdom unlike any other. A kingdom of peace, of justice and righteousness that will never end. A king and a kingdom ruled not by an iron fist, but by love, a transformative grace and love. And so we sing, Son of David, bring your kingdom here on earth as is above. Oh, Prince of Peace, in this stable turned a temple, come change us with your love. So at this point in the writing process, as we're writing the song, we had praised God for the fulfillment of the very first messianic prophecy from Genesis chapter 3. We had given thanks for the promise of blessing 
because he is the son of Abraham. And we had worshiped him as the promised eternal king of David's line. But there was, there was still a powerful truth hidden in that verse from Matthew chapter one that we had not yet explored. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Jesus' very name carried with it a glorious promise from God, explained by Gabriel to Joseph later in Matthew chapter one. Gabriel came to Joseph and said, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name literally means God is our salvation. And this is what the final verse of the song seeks to celebrate. O glorious Son, begotten of the Father, hallelujahs fill the vaulted skies. O praise, praise the name of the God who saves our King, our God, and our sacrifice. And then we sing that name. Oh Jesus. Oh Jesus. Son of God. Now son of man. I could spend a, a whole nother sermon. Just unpacking the scriptures. That make up this verse. But our time is short. So let me summarize the promises that we've sung about this morning. First, thousands of years before Christ was born, God promised to redeem his people through a child of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. Two, Thousands of years before Christ was born, God promised to bless all the families of the earth through a son of Abraham. Three, a thousand years thereabout before Christ was born, God promised an eternal king who would rule over a kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness that would be a descendant of David. Do you know that in total, there are over 350 messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament that are all answered in Jesus. 350 promises of, of the future that are all answered in Jesus. What does Christmas mean? Christmas means God keeps his promises. Why does that matter? If you've been hurt or betrayed by someone you love, if you feel like your marriage is on the cusp of ruin, God promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my 
unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. God keeps his promises. If you've been battling a habitual sin, porn, gluttony, gossip, and you've tried to put it to death, but it continually springs up from the broken soil of your life, God promises he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He promises no temptation has seized you that he will not make a way out. He promises his grace is sufficient for you. And God keeps his promises. If you've received the diagnosis you had most feared, or you're like most of us here, you are mourning the tragic loss of someone you've loved. God promises comfort. He promises his presence and protection in the valley of the shadow of death. He promises nearness to the brokenhearted. He promises that though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. And God keeps his promises. And if today you've realized that there is nothing sure in this world, there's nothing truly trustworthy, nothing that will never fail you, then my prayer is this year you will see Christmas as you have never seen it before. And God's promise of rescue and redemption through Jesus would be yours. We're going to stand in just a moment and we're going to sing the song again. We're going to recount the promises of God to us. And I want to invite those of you who would like prayer or would like to know How do I place my faith in Christ? How do I trust in these promises? How is it that I begin following Christ and experiencing the freedom and the joy that Christmas brings? We we are down here and we would love to pray and speak with you. I will be down here. Some of our leaders will also be down here. But this is, this is, This is where Creswellian joy comes from. This is is where my peace comes from. If you think for a moment that my life is hunky-dory, you need to know that it is not. But there is a peace that passes all understanding that guards my heart and my life. And the engine from which that peace comes is faith in Christ. And what feeds my faith in Christ? My knowledge that he is a promise keeper. He he does the absolutely incredible, the astounding. He keeps his promises.
So let's stand. Let me pray for us and let's sing. God, we pray. We pray that you would remind us through these lyrics and through other songs that we will be singing throughout this season that you are the God who sent your son, your only begotten son, out of love for the world to redeem the lost, to ransom us. And you did not just do it off, off the cuff. God, you planned this. And you planned this so that we might see, we might have the eyes of faith to see how beautifully orchestrated our salvation is and it would build our faith. So God, as we sing of your promises, build our faith. Draw those who are far from you close.